0: The Retrograde Approach, Episode Four Blunt Thoracic Aortic Injury.
1: Good afternoon. And welcome. Uh, my name is Dr. Siv Kumaran, and I'd like to introduce my co host for this podcast, Dr. Sam Farah. Yogi, how are you? Good, thanks. Yourself? I'm well. Sam, um, today we're going to be talking about blunt thoracic aortic injuries um, and do a little bit of a review of the information out there to provide our listeners uh, with some insight into the management. Uh, of blunt thoracic aortic injuries. Um, and perhaps if I could get you to begin by providing us with an introduction into the topic.
0: Well, I think um, it's fair to say, Yogi, that um, uh, if you've worked in a major former centre, undoubtedly you would have seen a blunt thoracic aortic injury. Hopefully within your time in that unit, or if you still work there, uh, you would most likely see it not infrequently. But blunt thoracic aortic injury is a uh, very common cause of death um, following a major trauma and actually only secondary to uh, head injuries following blunt trauma. Uh, Why we tend to see this as we've um, uh, seen the aortic isthmus is particularly prone to injury. And that's usually due to the difference in mobility between the aortic arch and the more tethered descending aorta, which is uh, fixed in particular by the ligamentum arteriosum and in this area we get abnormal load and pressure distribution at the isthmus which gives rise to significant shear forces
1: yeah and, I, and I, it's pretty fair to say that blunt thoracic aortic injury has fallen into the realm of vascular surgeons predominantly as an evolution of endovascular repair um, whereby uh, we are able to provide an intervention uh, which is associated with less morbidity and um, and potentially slightly less mortality interoperatively associated with a repair of the injury itself. Um, Sam, most of these patients, about 80% of them, die prior to reaching hospital. And of those who do reach hospital, mortality is about 46%. It's reasonably high. Um, and this is perhaps the frightening aspect of blunt thoracic injury. Um, Unfortunately, a large number of the people that we look after with blunt thoracic injuries unfortunately sustain these in circumstances of significant trauma. And perhaps the leading cause of this would be motor vehicle accidents. Uh, and definitely, in my experience, I've seen some frightening situations. However, I think um, the sort of quoted number is pr- approximately 70 to 90% of these blunt thoracic injuries occur within the vicinity of the left subclavian followed by the ascending aorta and the descending thoracic aorta. Um, And so have a relatively predictable pattern of
0: presentation when they do occur. And obviously the uh, tethering of the aorta by the ligamentum arteriosum, uh, apart from being a transition point, also is important because in this vicinity of injury, we obviously have the left subclavian artery, which is uh, obviously a key factor in your treatment, uh, especially when we're considering endovascular repair with the stent graft and looking in particular about deciding whether or not we should be covering the subclavian artery and then as a follow-on from that, whether or not we should be considering reconstruction with a bypass. As I mentioned earlier, unfortunately, patients who do sustain
1: blunt thoracic aortic injuries often have concomitant traumatic injuries which make management actually quite, quite difficult. Uh, about 90% of tra- aortic transections uh, will have damage to other other organs um, and, in particular, extrathoracic trauma, long bones, the abdomen and pelvis, up to a quarter of patients uh, with blunt thoracic injuries Um, have altered GCS and often uh, less than eight on arrival in hospital. And this is particularly problematic uh, when you have a concomitant head injury as you're trying to balance the priorities for um, anti-impulse therapy, which we'll talk about, versus um, cerebral perfusion, um, which makes this incredibly difficult. And then also the potential complications associated with systemic uh, anticoagulation for any operative intervention you may require, especially if there's an intracranial issue. Um, Other considerations, of course, include um, chest and thoracic injuries, um, particularly haemothorax, lung contusions, rib and thoracic vertebral fractures, which also make um, the ventilatory efforts associated with um, the patient impaired. And that puts the patient at an increased risk of pulmonary infections um, and adds to their overall morbidity. And really, the the real challenge here is avoiding the spiral of deterioration of the patient as the various traumatic presentations um, accumulate.
0: What uh, classification system, Yogi, do you use to classify blunt thoracic aortic injury?
1: The um, the most commonly used um, classification system is the Society of Vascular Surgery um, a classification, which uh, breaks up uh, blunt thoracic injury into four uh, sub- Uh, subtypes Uh, grade one which covers intimal tears grade two which covers intramural hematoma grade three which reflects aortic pseudoaneurysm and grade four which is which covers free rupture Uh, however there is an alternative classification system which is um, more radiologically based and uh, described by um, prof stands and that looks at the Presence or absence of external aortic contour abnormalities um, and again is divided into a four subtype classification uh, covering intimal tears, large intimal flaps without um, external, uh, external aortic contour abnormalities uh, but varying lengths in, of defects or thrombus. Uh, pseudoaneurysm and rupture
0: are the other two subtypes in that classification. I think what I took out of the Starnes classification was um, uh, that the absence of an external aortic contour abnormality um, was associated with lower mortality. Um, so whenever I have encountered a blunt thoracic aortic injury, I definitely now look for that particular feature of external contour abnormalities on the aorta to to try and provide some. Um, evidence about whether or not this will be a high or low mortality-associated injury.
1: Yeah, and and I think classification systems are are vital in trauma. They play a fundamental role as they then protocolise your approach to management. I think in blunt thoracic aortic injuries, uh, they also allow you to then initiate the ongoing management in a systematic approach, um, which is the way I look at classification systems.
0: I guess the other thing to just factor in with all these classification systems is to consider the hemodynamic state of the patient, whether the patient's stable or unstable.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and um, I think that plays a fundamental role as your in your role as a trainee when you're assessing these patients and determining their um, the urgency of intervention.
0: So yeah, you, one of the things that's emerged. Uh, Recently, or perhaps even not so recently, is delayed repair for uh, even up to grade three or aortic pseudoaneurysms. And I I suppose this is particularly important when patients have competing or other injuries where a decision needs to be made about what injury takes priority. Have you encountered any cases uh, in the past where such discussions and decisions needed to be had and made? Yeah, Sam, I think you raise
1: a a valiant point. I think the um, thinking regarding the management of blunt thoracic aortic injuries um, has shifted from, uh, in particular, the urgency for intervention um, with the sort of growing evidence to suggest that um, delayed repairs do better than immediate repairs, but that's probably reflective of the fact that those requiring immediate repairs are probably in very critically ill patients. The vast majority of um, grade four patients probably don't make it to hospital in time, and that's probably true. Um, In patients, in polytrauma patients with grade two or higher without any active bleeding from the aorta, delaying repair allows more time from the stress of the trauma um, to subside and allow for more resuscitation. The advantage of this is it probably allows for better prognosis um, and also... I guess, a better resuscitative state, which allows for a better operative repair as well. However, if the patient is unstable or bleeding from a high-grade injury, um, the only real choice you've got here is an immediate repair. So I think in terms of answering your question, um, when you are confronted by this situation, um, your first decision is really debating the hemodynamic stability of the patient and the considerations of... Um, to sources of their instability at that particular point in time. One encounter that I remember in more recent times that I've looked after is a gentleman. Unfortunately, it was a car versus tree situation, and presented from a peripheral hospital uh, with uh, with a poly tra- with a polytrauma presentation, but of significance, uh, had a aortic pseudoaneurysm um, distal uh, to the left subclavian. Uh, His other injuries he had sustained include an intracerebral bleed and he was GCS um, 7 on site and subsequently tubed um, prior to his pre-hospital arrival, but also had multiple long bone fractures um, of his upper and lower limb. On arrival in our tertiary centre and following a primary and secondary survey, the various surgical specialties involved in the management of the patient had to come up with a an action plan in terms of prioritizing pathology for intervention. Compared to his index CT scan from his initial um, presentation to that peripheral hospital, his subsequent CT revealed no significant change in his aortic um, morphology and there was no evidence of bleeding actively from the aorta into the chest or elsewhere. However, there were significant concerns from the neurosurgical service in regards to intra bleeds, in particular the concern about um, maintaining cerebral perfusion, especially um, as they thought the patient may also had a diffuse axonal injury. As you know, Sam, in these situations, um, the neurosurgeons typically try and uh, maintain a reasonably elevated systolic blood pressure or mean arterial pressure. To maintain perfusion which is always a difficult situation with a thoracic injury as your first in, inclination is to really manage the sort of anti-impulse management of that
0: situation so you you wanted to basically drop the blood pressure and they wanted to bump up the blood pressure
1: yes yeah, Sam. So i yeah so i mean you're really aiming for a heart rate less, less than 100 and a systolic blood pressure less than 120 but in this situation, we're compromising the potential cerebral perfusion associated with this. Um, the patient went on to have an um, EVD placed. And the challenges here, of course, are also positional, with the patient not being able to lie particularly flat as well without causing significant elevation in uh, intracranial pressure. So, this is a polytrauma patient who's young, who has uh, competing interests with the With a
0: potential intracranial issue as well as a thoracic injury. So, here's a question for you, Yogi. Why didn't you proceed with immediate TIVA? That way you could basically bump up the blood pressure to your heart's content.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's still a, a valid consideration. Um, I think the, the issues is that we were well aware of the patient's intracranial issues and also their altered GCS on site. And our primary concern at that point was systemic anticoagulation for the intervention itself with the neurosurgical service suggesting that any form of anticoagulation was contraindicated.
0: Yep. Yeah. Would you do a bar without heparin?
1: So in the end, we actually did the T-VAR without anticoagulation and just flushed significantly. And I think you could make an argument for this given that it's a large, you know, you're placing a stent into a large-bore vessel. Uh, The procedure time is actually short. Um, And in injuries that are reasonably well isolated, you can make an assessment of the landing zone promptly to place your stent graft without needing to spend a significant period of time debating where that was going to be. So in short, yes, you can. Um, It's potentially not common practice to do so, but this is a situation where you have multiple competing interests um, and there there is probably no easy way to debate it. Saying that though, any potential complication associated without systemic anticoagulation possibly could have been managed in an ad hoc manner subsequently, such as an excess occlusion as a result of a, a sheet occluding a vessel, for instance, which would be less morbid than sustaining a further intercerebral bleed from systemic anticoagulation.
0: Yeah, I think the sort of take-home point is if you've got if the patient is stable with anything less than grade four, there's time to sort out other competing injuries first. Yeah, I think so. And I think not only that,
1: I think part of part of the challenge of a blunt thoracic aortic injury, especially polytrauma, is engaging the other relevant stakeholders in the management of the patient. I think you've got to maintain good communication between teams. You've got to set clear criteria and guidelines for which you, you need to then be able to manage and negotiate with other units and at the first sign that you think there is a deterioration in the patient's state, management needs to be attended to very promptly. These injuries are complex, these patients are unwell um, and they pose significant challenges uh, even in critical care situations. Um, However, given the growing evidence that delayed repairs uh, do result in Better outcomes. It's probably not an unreasonable thought as you're as you're debating the um, the management strategy going forward.
0: So, the patient, particular in particular, these patients can be younger patients. Obviously, some of them also can be female with smaller access vessels. Um, I know we've spoken about this before, but what do you what are your strategies for dealing with that?
1: Yeah, I mean. Th- This is a population cohort which are extremely difficult um, in terms of the potential morbidity associated with intervention. In particular, Sam, the point you make here is that um, female blood vessels can be of a smaller diameter um, and as such are much more prone to injury as a result of a stent graft being advanced um, from the groin. In terms of strategies, I think the options you've got are to try and pick your lowest profile device, especially if access vessels are a problem. I think your second consideration is to make sure that um, you screen the graft um, from growing up to allow you to visualize whether the graft gets caught or kinked along the way as this can potentially increase the risk of injury. Uh, your third point would be to make sure the patient's adequately heparinized because the last thing you want to do is completely occlude the vessel uh, and its inflow by the stent graft itself. Um, and I think from a from a procedural point of view, you really want to have operators who understand the operation so that there aren't any significant delays uh, in terms of actually getting the stent graft to the site and being able to treat the problem Um Unfortunately, I think you're going to encounter injuries to the vessel um, as a re- if you do enough procedures. A final consideration, however, is if you truly do have an access problem with small vessels and you are unable to safely advance a graft, the thing that you would look at is, first of all, look at the contralateral side and see if the contralateral vessels are larger and consider coming from an alternate strategy, so left versus right. But also um, you could consider um, an iliac conduit um, if, that is an, if that's an appropriate um, option in young, healthy vessels or in older vessels which are calcified, uh, endopaving may be an alternate option to get your stent graft up.
0: Um, a couple of other options I've heard of or seen. One, um, this is done for an elective Thoracobdominal repair was a nemotopene infusion. Um, obviously in a patient who may be hypotensive, that's probably not appropriate, but it did allow the vessel to dilate a couple of millimeters. Um, so something to consider. And then something else I've seen is that the Rutherford Morrison incision performed and the common iliac basically punctured directly. Um I think with the conduit, it's a good option. But you know, in the situation where you're in a, you've basically got a potential multi-trauma patient, unstable, it's probably something you're not going to want to do. In the heat of the moment, would you agree with that?
1: I think it depends on the stability of the patient Um, and uh, hopefully a lack of (laughs) pelvic or intra-abdominal injuries. Uh, I think if you've got competing interests in that area, then it's probably not the most sensible approach in that situation. Mm.
0: Um, I guess the other thing to consider is the patient with the small aorta. So, you know, again, we're looking at diameters close to a centimetre and a half, or 15 to 16 millimetres. Um, I think in that situation, there is a graft that I can think of the C tag that, on IFU goes down to 16 to 19 millimetres. But um, just looking at the sizes of the sheath here, that's still an 18 French sheath. So um, I think it's just about mixing and matching and finding the solution that will allow you to safely treat the patient. You raise a good point here, Sam, which is
1: one of the difficulties with blunt thoracic aortic injuries or any trauma is the degree of resuscitation that occurs at the time of the injury and subsequent presentation to hospital, one of the advantages of a delayed repair is that you have a well-resuscitated patient and it allows for a better representation of the aortic diameter. One of the bigger issues with the more modern experience with thoracic endovascular aortic repair is the fact that oversizing of the graft can lead to stent graft collapse or stent graft thrombus at the distal extent of the graft. And these pose significant challenges for patients, especially younger patients. And so in a much more well-resuscitated patient, a much more accurate representation of the diameter can be achieved, which would allow for a, a bit uh, better longevity uh, in terms of the repair itself. And these are these are considerations that do need to take to be to, do need to be taken into account. Um, I guess the other consideration, of course, is the fact that once you do place it thoracic intergraph their degree of surveillance longer term uh, do d- does play a significant role into
0: the future and their radiation exposure is also a consideration. I think potentially MRI could be seen as a solution there or even less frequent imaging, especially if it's been stable for some time.
1: Yeah, so in, in my institution, Sam, in the first year, there's probably um, surveillance scans done at, um prior to discharge three months and then 12 months if things are stable followed by second annual second annual scans um, in typically an MRA um, uh, is usually the strategy with more increased surveillance if there's any evidence of complication or
0: the patient presents with symptoms. Would you ever um, have any concerns about covering the left subclavian in a trauma?
1: So uh, typically in younger patients, their ability to accommodate um, coverage of the subclavian or partial coverage of the left subclavian is uh, much greater. And so uh, in, in, a, in, in traumatic presentations, if the left subclavian needs to be covered um, to achieve a seal, I tend not to hesitate to do so. However, I am mindful of the fact that Um, of whether uh, the patient has a dominant left vertebral um, um, as I think this is an important consideration um, or whether it's a terminus left vertebral into a a posterior inferior cerebellar artery um, as I think that there is a slightly increased preponderance to a posterior circulation event associated with that. Um the other considerations I do take into account prior to coverage of the subclavian is uh the length of coverage um for the patient. In particular, most of these thoracic stents that you do place with uh for transection or um blunt thoracic aortic injury are short. Um and so the risk of spinal cord ischemia is smaller. However, uh, if your stent coverage is going to be greater than 20 centimeters, then I would, uh, I would rethink my strategy in that situation and mm. see if um, a re, a revascularization is necessary. Mm. My other thoughts are, of course, previous um, infrarinal aortic surgery, internal aliac, um disease, but that's typically uncommon in younger patients as well. Um, and also, co- if coverage extends into uh, the territory covered by the artery of Dinkovitz, then, of course, this is also my other thoughts in, in the back of my mind. Um, younger patients typically don't have um grafts coming off the subclavian. Um, however, that would be a consideration of a slightly older population group. However, younger patients may have access um, in that in the, in the left arm, which may need to be taken into account. Uh, Subsequently, in in which case revascularization may be necessary. Sam, um, for our young listeners out there, it might be worthwhile um, having a talk about um, some of the technical aspects of performing a thoracic endovascular aortic repair. Um, Perhaps you could begin by talking through some of your procedural considerations, uh, perhaps by beginning with your planning thoughts uh, for what you take into account when performing a TVA?
0: I think overall a TVA can be a very, well, generally a very straightforward procedure, i.e. there's really just one piece to put in generally and all the hard work is at the start of the case when you're planning. So in the first instance, I think the first consideration I think we've already sufficiently covered access, so I won't go into that too much now, but just to say that obviously the access and the size of the stent graft are important considerations, particularly as um, really 16 French is the smallest device that uh, you, you can really get, which would be an alpha thoracic. Uh, in terms of oversizing, I would generally aim for roughly 10%. I wouldn't go much more than that in a trauma. Particularly as well, you'd have to consider whether or not the patient is um, hemodynamically compromised and the actual measured aorta is smaller than their real aorta. And again, this comes to what we were talking about earlier, Yogi, where if the patient undergoes a delayed repair, they can get resuscitated in, in that situation. A repeat scan may demonstrate a more accurate reflection of the true aortic diameter. Uh,
1: Sam, one of the challenges um, with younger patients may also be in relation to the angulation or peaking of their aortic arch. This can often be a a difficult situation, in particular with tracking the stent graft. Do you see that as being a significant limitation with proceeding to TIVA? And have you encountered that as a problem?
0: Um, I have not encountered that as a problem. I think, first of all, the newer devices have a much smaller nose cone, which um, make tracking much easier. I think the first step is to have your wire really as close to the aortic valve as you can get it to just give yourself a bit more purchase um, within the aortic arch to deliver your device. Some of the devices apart from having a small nose comb, obviously there's a conformal device that you could angulate, which can sometimes make uh, tracking a bit easier. But um, I think, um, Yogi, you've had a case previously where you've just been unable to track the device due to angulation. And if it's, if it can't be done, there are obviously some other um, options such as having a second Lundapus wire or buddy wires, but um I think there are some rare instances where the angulation is too significant where you can't track a device. Yeah, and so the, like you suggested,
1: the other alternative strategy is a through and through wire to get the stent graft over, and that was in a situation with a patient with a significant thoracic injury with with great disruption of the aorta, uh, without clear delineation of the, um, of the vessel lumen itself. Sam, what about uh, landing zones for stent grafts? Uh, we talk about a lot of that for the, um, in the inferenal work, but for thoracic aneurysms, we talk about at least a two-centimetre landing zone approximately for a stent graft. Um, anything different with blunt thoracic aortic injuries?
0: So generally, you need two centimetres of coverage, like just as you would for an aneurysm. And in that case, uh, obviously, uh, in most of these cases, you're going to have to cover the left subclavian to attain that. Um, I have seen cases where the subclavian was partially covered to try and maintain flow in the subclavian where they could safely obtain two centimeters by doing that. However, uh, I did uh, see thrombus develop within the, left, within the left subclavian artery, so I would generally not attempt that in the future. One
1: alternative strategy is a snorkel stent. However, I would say that's not common practice, especially in trauma. So, Sam, the patient's on the table um, and you've come into the theatre with your registrar having prepped and dragged the patient. Could you talk us through the steps involved in performing the thoracic intercraft?
0: So the first uh, consideration is... um, After gaining access, uh, my preference for access is ultrasound guided puncture of the right common femoral artery, and then after placing a sixth uh, French sheath after I would pre-close, I would then put a a short eight French sheath in. I would then get a thoracic quiz wire um, after passing an angle glide wire to to the aortic arch, and then passing a – would probably need a long – uh, angle glide to do that with a Hint catheter or 100 centimetre angle catheter and then exchanging for a thoracic Lundquist. Uh, if the patient was shorter, you might be able to get around the aortic arch without a long catheter. For, for our
1: younger listeners, Sam, uh, could you tell us what's the difference between a thoracic Lundquist and a normal Lundquist?
0: The thoracic Lundquist has uh, essentially a, uh, a curve in the stiff part of the wire, and that allows um, more conformability to the aortic arch. Um, And Sam, so you preferentially
1: achieved access with your larger sheath from the right. Uh, Talk us through what you do with the left side.
0: So left side, I would just put a short 5 French sheath in, and that's basically uh, access for a pigtail catheter, um, which would also have to be in the aortic arch as well. Uh, some people have talked about getting access from the left arm. So the subclavian uh, can be adequately uh, visualized with your catheter and wire. I think that, in my is is my preference actually not to do that. I think you can get adequate visualization from below. And ultimately, in most of these cases, you've got to cover the subclavian anyway. So... Um, I don't find it offers that much advantages, and you have to usually do a break or cup down to obtain that.
1: Uh, so, Sam, you've um, got your lundy, your pigtail up. Um, talk us through the angulation of the sea arm to open up the aorta for placement of the stem graft.
0: Yeah, so usually uh, you're around or close to 60 degrees of LAO. And you really want to try and profile the major aortic branches well to ensure a, that you've covered the subclavian if required, you've also obtained an adequate seal zone. And then also you have not encroached on the uh, common left common carotid artery, uh, which would, I think most of us would agree is a bit of a no, no. Uh, The other consideration is the blood pressure during the case. Um, I find that with the modern endographs that significant hypertension is actually probably not required that much as it used to be. Um and there's really not much wind socking seen uh with some of the newer graphs.
1: So you ra- you raised some important points there, Sam. Um so So you've got your, you've got an LEO projection. Um, You've got the um, pigtail up to do your run. Um, You've given heparin presumably at this point systemically. Um, You've brought your graft up uh, to deploy. Um, Could you talk about, what windsocking actually ref, uh, reflects angiographically um, as you're trying to deploy this in craft?
0: So it's basically when the graft is partially opened, uh, you have the proximal graft exposed to the systemic circulation, but the distal end of the graft is still uh, enclosed within the sheath. And basically what happens is um, the uh systemic pressure from the cardiac output causes the graft to move basically forwards and backwards as you try and uh, position it obviously when you're trying to deploy the graft precisely that's uh can be slightly unnerving um as things uh, are moving as you're trying to unsheath.
1: and so sam um Whilst it's not common practice in blunt thoracic injuries to have adjuncts and to try and reduce wind sucking, just general principle wise, what some of the techniques that you've seen to try and achieve ad- ac- accurate deployment of the graft?
0: So, some of the ones that uh, are employed is, you, you know, YARC, us to reduce the systolic pressure as much as possible. Uh, and obviously the anaesthetists have their own secret magical ways of doing that. Uh, the other mechanisms, are perhaps in a more elective situation, mm-hmm. you consider uh, cardiac overpacing, well, which requires um, basically pacing leads to be uh, inserted um, by the anaesthetist or the intensivist prior to the case commencing. The other one I've heard of but not seen is basically uh, getting femoral vein vein access and passing a photo into the IVC and inflating it to basically drop the preload and therefore drop the afterload. Uh, I've heard that it's worked quite well in some instances, and I've also heard that it's 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 induced fairly profound hypotension that was a bit disconcerting. So uh, I guess uh, user beware, but those are the sort of um, methods I've seen or heard of being used. But as I said, the newer graphs these days are so good. I I think that the need for that is, is rapidly diminishing. Uh, Sam, in terms
1: of um, just some technical consideration, um, what rate and volume do you set your pump at uh, for your contrast runs?
0: Um, I generally use uh two thirds contrast of Vizipake 270 or 320, and for the first few runs, uh, generally you know, 20 mils or 20 mils per second. You really want good views, and uh, something I've always noticed is that the position of the end of the tracheal tube is often hit really close to your landing zone for whatever reason. I don't know if you've noticed that as well. Yeah, I think.
1: Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point that um, you use your landmarks to try and define the origin of the left subclavian in particular uh, with these injuries and um, the UTT tube is a great great benchmark to work off. Uh, Sam, you've deployed your stent graft, um, your catheter, your pigtail catheter from the bottom. Um, Just talk us through some of the final steps that you would perform in this procedure.
0: So, yeah, uh, you want to rip your pigtail out as quickly as possible. No, you want to gently remove your pigtail by passing a wire into it because the pigtail will be trapped behind the stent stent graft. And at this stage, most people, and myself included, would then uh, basically cannulate the stent graft, place the pigtail back through the stent now, and then do a final run to ensure that there's no filling of the false lumen fills the pseudoaneurysm anymore, i.e., sure that there's no ender leak I would generally not code a balloon or a trauma yeah I
1: think that's fair um, and then you would achieve closure on your way out here and you your strategy early on was to pre-close the vessels to achieve this
0: yeah and I think you know if you're concerned about the access that would be I would Bring your pigtail back down into the infrarenal aorta and do a twenty mil or twenty mil per second run or fifteen at fifteen in the infrarenal aorta just to have a look at your access vessels very carefully.